whether we're facing the pandemic and all the effects of that from a securely attached inner place or an insecurely attached inner place, we're being affected by it. I want to make it very clear that although secure attachment is a beneficial status to have as an adult, it doesn't prevent us from experiencing difficulty and pain when there are threats and dangers that we encounter. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. If you are interested in attachment, and particularly adult attachment, and healing and growing and working through early attachment injuries, either for yourself or for your clients, then you are absolutely in the right place. We're very excited to bring to you a deep dive with Dr. David Elliott. He's going to be really moving into one of the three pillars in treating attachment disturbances. Dr. Elliott, besides being a psychologist in private practice, he's also on the faculty and teaches at the International School for Psychotherapy, Counseling, and Group Leadership in St. Petersburg, Russia. His background is Harvard, Tufts, McLean, which is the teaching hospital for Harvard Medical School. For those of you that are following it, I went nuts when I found his book because it was new, it was different. I'm not the only one that noticed the value of their work. And by their work, I mean this book was with Dr. Dan Brown, who, by the way, we have an episode with him as well. And he has some interesting training through the Attachment Project. And if you are interested in doing that, be sure and grab our coupon code and you'll get a discount from us. Their work together on this three-pillar model has really been recognized. It's empirically validated. They've also won an award from the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Disassociation, ISSTD, in 2018, the Pierre Jeanet Writing Award. So they know what they're talking about. They're very well respected in their field. And because of our connection with him earlier, we were so excited. We brought him to Austin, Texas and had a live professional conference. It's the only time we've ever done that as far as getting so interested in new material coming out conference was fantastic. We've maintained a friendship going forward. And now we are going to be doing a writing project with him to continue to help get these treatment models out there further to the world. But today, Anne is going to have a conversation with him where they're going to do a deep dive, particularly for people who are in distress or isolated during this epidemic, where that we can't have social contact. Again, I really hope that you'll enjoy it, both as a clinician, you know, it's an example of the model, but also if you're stuck at home, this is one to listen to, or if you know somebody that's stuck at home, be sure and send it to them. Okay, without further ado, I bring you Ann Kelly and David Elliott. It seems particularly relevant and actually quite interesting to be focusing on attachment at the time of the pandemic and the worldwide reactions to it. You know, attachment, as we well know, is a system that evolved within us in response to the reality of threat and danger. That is just a fundamental aspect of being alive. And in order for the survival of us individually and as a species, we had to find ways to recognize threat and danger as early as possible and to be protected against it as much as possible. 
And one of the fundamental components of what is called the attachment system or the attachment behavioral system is proximity seeking. At times of threat, danger, distress, it's encoded within us to seek out helpful and protective others as a way to cope with the danger and the threat that our nervous system reacts to and and recognizes. So isn't it interesting at this time of pervasive threat to essentially the whole world population all at once, the primary recommended way of responding to that threat is to keep distant from people. It's the opposite of proximity seeking. So that presents a challenge to us. That presents a challenge to our nervous systems, which are wondering, what's going on? I feel threatened. I feel in danger. And what do you mean I can't go to my friends? What do you mean I can't kiss and hug the people that are close to me? And then we have to try to override that with Mm -hmm. the recognition about the reality of the spread of the virus, how that works. I think it's important to recognize the difference between our need to have physical distance, that physical distance is what is being blocked from us, but our body is still craving connection. Yes, absolutely. And of course, there are many people who are fortunate to be sheltering in place or quarantining with close others, with loved ones, with family members. And so if they're all sharing a certain space and the self-protective methods and strategies, then it's possible for those of us who can do that to have the kind of proximity and contact and the soothing that comes from that. Our nervous systems recognize that. Our nervous systems respond to that and say, ah, yes, okay, well, at least for now, things are okay. And and that's so useful. But we have to highlight also that there are millions of people who aren't in that kind of situation. And for those of us who aren't sheltering in place or quarantining with others, that can be particularly challenging. And I'm a person in that latter situation. My wife, Linda, is from Sweden, from Stockholm, and uh, I'm in the U.S. And for years, we've been going back and forth between the two places. In the midst of this, she got caught back and I got caught forth, or however we want to say it, from our usual back and forth together or coming together. And she's in Sweden and I'm in the U.S. in the Boston area. And so we have a whole ocean between us. So nobody can fault us for our social distancing practice. But I feel it in my body. I feel the longing, the missing of her and the contact. We're doing everything we can through the great good fortune of the technologies available for video conferencing and phone and all of that. So we're staying connected as best as we can. But there's nothing like the bodily experience of closeness and connection. It's been particularly hard in the last few days. And we'll go into, in this conversation, some ways that I've been also practicing trying to respond effectively and helpfully to that. Something I'd like to share with all the listeners, too. And there's been much talk societally for a long time about the epidemic of loneliness, the terribly harmful effects that can have on us. So if you add what was already present into what's happening now, for many people who, you know, don't have a partner, who don't have many friends, whose partners have died or they're isolated for whatever reasons, this becomes particularly important to think about ways to try to help even just a little bit with the suffering that that can create. I often say to my patients when they talk about, you know, missing connection, even before the coronavirus situation, they talk about 
you know, oh, I, you know, I feel so bad, about, you know, I don't have a relationship and, you know, what's wrong with me? And I say, actually, this highlights there's nothing wrong with you. We're wired for connection. The fact that you want to be close with somebody says that you're an alive human being. And isn't that beautiful? It's not a sign of weakness. It's not like I should be fine without a relationship. And of course, we're not just talking about romantic relationships, like any connection. When you feel that sense of aloneness, you're not supposed to be fine because the interconnect, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, we're programming wired for these attachments to keep us safe. We got the three of us. We're talking about some of the, the strategies that we're highlighting in the book to really help people who can't just jump out and find a relationship. Because sometimes it's, okay, interconnection is so important, but what if I don't have somebody there and you're living with that isolation and people are saying, but isolation isn't good for you. Well, it's so important to have strategies that actually really do work that can enliven your body with a sense of connection. You have developed these strategies for dealing more with attachment trauma. Can you say a little bit about that? And sure, sure, yeah. Back in the fall of 2016, I published a book co-written with Dan Brown and, and a group of colleagues called Attachment Disturbances in Adults, and we had a Therapist Uncensored podcast talking about all that material. And basically, that book highlights what we consider to be the most important aspects of the history of attachment and assessment and the therapies that have been available. And we presented a therapeutic model and approach that we believe is an integrative combination of the best that's been out there. And mm -hmm. we call it the three pillars model. The first pillar is using imagination co-created between therapist and patient or client, co-created mental imagery of positive beneficial attachment figures as a way to help heal attachment insecurity during adulthood. And we find that to be a very, very powerful method, effective and efficient, and often really enjoy doing because it doesn't require people to focus on the attachment trauma and the pain and the difficulty from actual early experience. We guide people toward creating positive imagery of attachment figures and having very beneficial experiences in connection, actual connection with these imagined figures. And whether we're facing the pandemic and all the effects of that from a securely attached inner place or an insecurely attached inner place, we're being affected by it. I want to make it very clear that although secure attachment is a beneficial status to have as an adult, it doesn't prevent us from experiencing difficulty and pain when there are threats and dangers that we encounter. Secure attachment during adulthood is essentially the inner belief that in the face of threat and danger, we will have sufficient inner and outer resources for good enough handling of the threats and the challenges that we encounter. It doesn't mean it will be easy, but we have an inner, somewhere an inner confidence that as hard as this is, there is available what it will take to get through it. We're living in a time of a deep uncertainty. For me personally, I feel like my body feels a little worn down, like feeling a little worn out from holding all of that uncertainty, just an experience in my body of anxiety of something looming out there. Like just the reminder that there's a pandemic out there is really important because there's a reason why our body's in this place. And to allow your experience, as you've just described, is so very important. 
I've talked with people who maybe have had a tendency to be self-critical prior to all this, but in this situation, lo and behold, they still have this critic within them and saying, well, why do I feel so tired? Or, you know, I I haven't been doing as much. I haven't been having to go to work. Why do I feel a little anxious? You know, I, I have enough food and people are much worse off than me. And, you know, I have my partner or my family nearby. Well, the threat is real. As good as some aspects of circumstances may be for somebody, the threat is real. And our bodies, our nervous systems react. And to honor that becomes so very important. And to be compassionate for ourselves, to have self-compassion for the limitations we're experiencing. I, I've noticed my times lately, my, my thinking maybe has been a little less clear, you know, feeling a little more disorganization inside. And well, that's my nervous system reacting to the disconnections, as I talked about, you know, and in Sweden and me here. It's my nervous system reacting to the great unknown, as you were saying, to the threats that exist all around us and we hear about anytime we tune into media. So knowing something about our nervous system is helpful because when we're under danger and threat, there's less energy that's directed to the higher cortical centers of the brain and those those processes and more directed to the survival-oriented structures and, and processes and functions within us that don't depend on higher cortical functions. So when my mind hasn't been as clear lately, I think, well, all right, I can allow that. It's nothing to be afraid about at the moment. So I want to offer to all the listeners a modification of the mental imagery processes that we use for healing attachment insecurity. And I'm modifying aspects of it, but keeping the overall context of establishing within one's own inner experience a strongly felt bodily foundation for creating a type of imagined scenario that, as you were saying, can be helpful for giving the self, giving the nervous system, giving the aspects of us that really want to feel connected for the purpose of feeling soothed and comforted and safe to create that opportunity, even amidst an actual experience of social isolation. So I'd like to present this as a tool, as a resource for listeners to both hear a little bit about how we do this work and also to experience it directly, personally, in case it might be helpful for you as a listener. We know that it works. And uh, a lot of this understanding came out of the field of sports psychology and peak performance training, where it's been well-established empirically through research that when an athlete engages in imagination, when an athlete imagines competing in whatever sport activity, whatever tournament or or match or, or game that the athlete is preparing for, imagining engaging with that in as much physically felt detail as possible will result in better performance than if the athlete only practiced without imagination. So the principle is that practice plus imagined experience of the sport leads to better outcomes than only practice. It works with musicians as well, various research findings that if musicians practice in their heads, so to speak, even without playing their instrument, then there's a noticeable and empirically validated bump up in their actual performance when they go to play. 
What's so powerful about that is that there has even been research to show that it's not only a bump, like when they have a study with a piano player being given music that they practice and another group where they're not practicing, but they're given time to imagine and imagine and imagine the new piece. And they spend time visualizing it and visualizing their hands on the keys and then you have... And feeling their hands on the keys and going through the, playing the notes, right? Right, the visually feel, yes, imagining their whole body in the movement, right? And imagining the notes and the outcome. And then they have a judge listen. They performed equally well. Isn't that amazing? Equally well as the ones who didn't imagine and only did the... Right, the ones that got the physical practice and then the non-physical practice, but only imagery, and then they had judge listen, and they were able to progress equally well. Isn't that fascinating? It's amazing, yeah, yeah. So if we think about it from the scientific perspective of this, like why would that be? Why would being able to imagine your hands playing or using the visual imagery of a very secure person in your life, why would it change our body? Well, what's been found is that obviously when we're physically engaging with some activity, then there's neurological firings of the relevant neuronal systems and neurons that are actual physical effects. So when we move our fingers in a certain way, there are corresponding brain activity patterns in the motor cortex and and, uh, the supportive structures. And it turns out that those same areas of the brain in the motor cortex and the relevant structures and systems Even when a person is not physically going through the motions, literally, of some activity, and they're just imagining going through those motions, there's very similar brain activity and neuronal firings. So whether the experience is engaging externally with some activity or engaging internally with imagining engaging with that activity, the brain activity is very similar. And that's why imagination can be so powerful and effective. Somebody told me that Michael Phelps imagines and imagine imagines his performance and has, and even the ways that he ha- might mess up. But if he was to mess up, how would he recover? And so you think about it so often when we think about, oh my gosh, I, I might mess up, I might mess up, and you stop there, and he imagines the mess up, and then imagines his body being accustomed to the mistake and getting through it, and has found that he can recover much quicker from the mess ups that he might encounter. Similar to that, I've heard the story of a professional race car driver who would imagine the course prior to the race and in much detail feel himself in the car going really, really fast and taking really sharp turns and imagining particularly challenging areas of the course of the track. And as you said with Michael Phelps, imagining starting to lose control of the car, but then capturing that, getting it back in control basically encoding that within his nervous system, the possibility of a problem, and then being able in that instant to respond to it effectively and and stay on course, literally. One of the psychological laws or truths about our psychological functioning is that whatever we focus on grows. So as you were saying, if we focus on what we're afraid of and really imagine, oh no, what if this happens? Oh no, I'm going to be upset. Oh no, I won't be able to handle this well, that can actually become self-fulfilling to some degree. 
So we're faced with the challenge, and sometimes it really is a challenge, particularly at times of stress like this, to direct the mind differently and say, oh, well, okay, yeah, you know, that could happen because we don't know mm -hmm. the future. Gee, that could happen and that would not be good. But, you know, maybe it won't happen. What's another possibility? And then to yeah. see if the mind can come up with a different possibility or imagine oneself actually handling the feared for circumstance effectively like Michael right. Phelps or this race driver I was mentioning. And linking back to the imagery for this time of disconnection and imagining a close, safe, supportive connection with somebody, with a person. And thinking about Linda again and my own practice of this approach, given my circumstances at the moment. Earlier today, I was doing what I'll be describing for you and, and the others and leading you all through. And I was imagining myself with Linda, that we were actually sitting together on the sofa here. And I was feeling in my body the warmth of her presence right next to me and really trying to experience the physical sensation of that warmth through my imagination. And then spontaneously, as I was imagining being together with her, we just put our faces cheek to cheek. We were sitting next to each other and I really focused on feeling her cheek in contact with mine and vice versa. And that brought such a good feeling. Just I could feel the, the warmth and the love and the, and the sense of connectedness be there. And it was so helpful. You know, it was so good given you know, how I'd been feeling disconnected uh. her and sad about that. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be all better. And you know, a couple hours later, I was feeling sad again. But this is a method, it's an approach, it's a practice that can give us something that is so valuable and so beneficial. Of course, it's not the same as if she actually showed up and we were sitting on the sofa together. There would be more channels of information. There would be, you know, it would be a fuller, richer experience probably. But to the extent that I could vivify and make very visceral and strong within my experience, the sense of her being present, to the extent I could create that vividly in my inner experience, there are aspects of the nervous system that actually don't know that she's not there and will respond yeah. as though she is. And it's not about becoming delusional or psychotic or, or anything else. That, oh, you know, she's there when she's actually not. But it's activating the channels in our psyche and our nervous system that are primed to respond to that kind of connection. And like I said, to some extent, they don't know that she's not actually there. And that's why this can be so helpful. We're going to do the exercise now. Are you ready to kind of jump in? And for the listeners out there, David is sharing that he's imagining his wife. And depending on your circumstance, allow yourself to imagine anyone in your experience in your life that might bring those sense of comfort, whether it is a spouse, whether it is a friend, a close friend, somebody important to you, even maybe somebody who's passed in your life because maybe you've lost somebody and that is the reason for your isolation. Even a beloved grandmother. Or if it's not somebody you you know or have known, make somebody up. Let yourself create a sense of a person who would somehow be just right for you to be with at this time. For some people, I think that will be most relevant. And because it's imagination, you can have that person be exactly the ways you would want him or her to be. The imagination is unlimited. We're completely free to imagine whatever we would like. And that's one of the wonderful aspects of this approach. All right. Well, I am ready to get started. Okay. And as we've touched on a little bit already, or maybe a lot, the bodily ground for this 
is very, very helpful. So the first part of the way I'll be guiding you will be to bring attention to your bodily felt experience. So take a few minutes now and bring your awareness to your body and let yourself move or shift or adjust in any ways that feel somehow just right for you to support you feeling as comfortable as you can be wherever you are right now. So move or shift, adjust or stretch out, whatever feels right. And of course, anytime as we go through this, you're welcome to move or shift or adjust as well. Whatever would help you feel comfortable physically. And bring your awareness to your whole body sense, the arrangement of your arms and your legs, the bends at the joints, the elbows, the knees, the ankles. And if it helps, you can have your eyes shut. You're welcome to have them open as well, but if it helps to go inward, you can let the eyes be shut as well. And become aware of whatever is physically supporting the body right now. If you're on a chair, feel the chair that's under you, the sofa that's under you, on the bed or the floor. Just feel whatever is supporting the body now. And feel how you can allow that support to be here for you now. You don't have to make effort. The body is supported. Really feel into that now. Notice what happens as the body, the muscles realize they don't have to make effort. They can let go into the supports that are present for you right now. And when you're ready, become aware of your breathing. And there's no need to change the breath in any way. Just follow the breath as it is. The natural inflow and outflow of the breath. And see how close you can get to the movements and the sensations of each breath. Inhaling, taking in, exhaling, letting go. Really close to the breath. And anytime the mind moves away from the breath, when you notice it has, just gently bring it back. Gently bringing the mind back to movements, sensations of each breath. When you're ready, notice even more the exhalations, the release of the breath. Each exhalation, a release, a letting go, and feel how good that can feel. 
each exhalation a release, a letting go. After the taking in, the bringing in of the breath, simply letting go and the breath flows out. Feel what that's like in the body. Now, let the breath fade into the background of awareness. And let yourself imagine now being with somebody that you'd really like to be with right now. Imagine yourself being with somebody with whom you can feel safe and comfortable, supported by and comfortably close to. And this person may be somewhere, maybe someone that you know, maybe someone you've known, or maybe somebody that you are imagining now for the very first time, someone who would be just right for you to be with at this time of challenge and difficulty. Someone who can really see you and know you and supports you in having just the right balance between closeness and distance. And as you imagine this person being with this person, feel yourself with this person. not just viewing or seeing as though from the outside, but feel yourself together with this person now. And the more aware you are of being together with this person, the clearer that sense becomes. Soon it's as though you're really together in a felt sense. Notice what happens within you being together with this person now. Feel the sense of connection just as it is. And if any difficulties arise in your experience, let the imagery immediately shift in such a way that it resolves the difficulty. It gives you the sense that being together with this person can provide for you what you most need right now, what somehow feels most right, most supportive of your well-being. And it might also happen that this person feels so very good to be together with you. You might be aware of this. But the feeling is mutual. Not only can you receive the benefits of being together, but you also give to the other by being together. 
and you can feel good about the mutual experience of closeness. And the closeness can be just right if you'd like to be in physical contact and certainly let that happen. And if you'd like to not at the moment be in physical contact, but just be near, that's just fine too. Feel into what's most right for you. This moment, being together, just as you are. And feel in the body what happens. Notice your inner state of being. Feel what happens within you. It lets you know that you're being supported and connected in a way that's just right for you. Notice where in the body you really feel the effects most. Form a very clear impression of this. And even though just a few moments of clock time pass, it can seem like much longer time goes by. Long enough for you to be together for as long as you'd like to be able to really take in what feels so very good, so very right to your deepest being. Feeling the connection, the closeness, such a clear impression within you. You can know that this connection is always available to you. Anytime you'd like to feel this again, bring this person into your awareness. Let yourself imagine being in contact in just the right way for you. Notice how your inner being, your nervous system will remember, will bring up for you the good feelings of the connection you're having now. In feeling this within you, let the imagery gently dissolve away. Now, as I count from five down to one, with each number, feel yourself orienting more and more fully back to exactly where you are. And when I reach one, your eyes open, feel refreshed and alert and comfortable and keeping with you the good feelings that have come from connection you've made now. Five, four, three, two, and one, eyes open, relaxed, refreshed. And let yourself stretch or move or adjust your own way, your own timing, whatever feels right to you. Notice what may feel different, what may look different as you look around your room and feel just as you are. I noticed some different things and felt my whole body come into the moment 
right? Away from the podcast and away from, you know, just being really in the moment. So just a nice combination of the way we just went into a very mindful, almost meditative experience to begin with, within my body feeling open to when you brought in the imagery, right? Like I felt like I was able to take time to prepare myself for that. That was really nice. Yes, preparing the ground is a really important aspect of it to support the receptiveness to the imagined and actually felt connectedness. Yeah, I noticed one of the things you said that I really love too is when you talked about that the connection is just right for you. And I felt that so important because you said you imagined the touch and the connection. And very quickly you said, or maybe that isn't what's most comfortable. Maybe somebody's sitting. And I felt just how much this imagined experience needs to be just right for each person. For some people, the physical touch would feel so comforting. And for others, depending on your history and your experience, that might actually raise some sense of encroachment. So I love the way that the exercise is just like, what is right for you? It may be that whatever the sense of connection that warms your body. So I felt you coming frequently back to the experience of being aware of what would feel safe in my body, what would feel connection in my body. Yes, I don't want to be presumptuous about what any given person would feel as most safe and most supportive and most beneficial. For some people, that is a you know, real sense of contact physically. For other people, just being in the same room together, having conversation, that may be just right. And it might differ at different times of doing the imagining as well. So for the listeners out there that have various degrees of social isolation right now, it could be someone who's on their own completely, or it could be even somebody that's in a relationship that doesn't feel connecting. I would imagine there's a sense of, whatever experience of feeling alone and disconnected is for you. This could be such a great resource to be able to have a go-to, to like a feeling, a sense of a desire for connection that I can't quite meet. How often would you imagine somebody using something like this? Well, I would say as often as the person feels like it could be useful. Again, Mm. there's, I'm sure, a wide variation in the degree of need or value of this kind of thing. The more isolated someone's feeling and the more distress that that might come from that, then the more useful it would be to listen a little more frequently or practice it a little more frequently. For someone who maybe has a lot, you know, reasonable connectedness and connections amidst the circumstances as they are now, but maybe missing one particular person. You know, like if, say, one's mother or father is across the country or across the world somewhere, even though the spouse or kids are in in the home and that's feeling really good, we can still miss individual people. And Mm -hmm. I would suggest following this imaginative practice for the mother or the father or whoever it is that you're feeling particularly disconnected from and feeling sad about. So you can and send time and space and actually meet up with that person in the inner experience. It's so interesting you should say that, David. The imagery that I chose to do was to imagine being close to my mother who passed away over 30 years ago. And I noticed both the joy in the sense of being able to feel connected and then moments of sadness along the way. 
of the loss. And I could find myself toggling and I ended up sort of really feeling most of the connection along the way. But I felt myself just really feeling waves every once in a while of loss along the way and then connection. So I guess connection is not always just about warmth. It could bring a variety of feelings to us. It's such a good point. When I'm working with somebody specifically on healing from attachment insecurity, the way we do it in that context is the patient or client actually imagines from the inner felt sense, not being the adult that he or she is, but being a child. Being a child and being with parents, imagined parents who would be just right for the self as child. It's not uncommon that somebody will early on in the process talk about the actual parents not being able to be the ways that the person is imagining the best possible parents to be. And that's actually quite normal, the grieving, the, the sense of loss and sadness that can come from that. Say, so, yeah, you know, of course, you know, your parents, they can only be as best as they can be. They did their best. And it's not about making them bad, but you know what, you missed out on certain things and you can feel sad about that. And obviously for you, thinking of your mom, wonderful that you could have that felt sense of connection with her. Really wonderful. And that felt sense of connection naturally brings up a sense of loss because she hasn't been around for 30 years in person. Uh, And I can imagine if one's out there and feeling isolated and having this experience, you might experience your aloneness a little bit more deeply in this journey of also feeling connection and to share that with the person who's with us. Like to be able to experience it and not be so much of our worn out feeling is blocking feelings, isn't it? It's blocking the anxiety, it's blocking loss and welcoming it in and even being comforted by it. And that's what I was able to do in my imagery is how would my mom respond to my own loss of her? So it was actually super connecting. And I'm imagining other individuals who are alone and imagining the feeling of connection and the loss along the way and just inviting people to allow that in and feel comforted because it's the connection, not just the positive feelings, but any sense of connection, even connection in our sadness, right? Like there is so important to say, I've been lonely and I'm so glad to sort of be in the connection of even the sadness or the fears about the COVID or the fears about being alone. So true. And I'm so glad you described your experience of this, particularly how you brought your sense of sadness into the imagery experience. You can bring that to your mom together with her, acknowledge that you're sad that she isn't with you, that you lost her all those years ago. And, you know, because it's imagination, we can have it be any way we want. You know, it might not make Mm -hmm. so-called logical sense to bring the loss of her to your mother, but you can do that in imagination, completely free. And when people do things like that, as you described, it actually is very healing. It contributes to the healing process. And to bring it into this current moment, for any of you out there that were able to travel with us on this experience, and to just, I just invite you just to welcome whatever experiences that you felt. David, your voice is so soothing and so loving, so I was able to really utilize that to feel nurtured by you along in this journey, and feel nurtured, and I hope that was true for the other listeners out there to just feel the nurturing in your wonderful voice and the soothing and your openness. And 
we're going to put this separate from the podcast. So it'll be in the podcast as well as on our website as a separate entity so that people can come back to it. That's a great idea. And let me just make one more point about allowing whatever comes in to the imagery as you highlighted. It wouldn't be surprising that if there's somebody you are imagining being connected with who isn't with you, that a variety of feelings could come up. Like you said with your mom, a sense of sadness around the loss. But maybe somebody could have some anger come up at that person they're imagining. Like, why aren't you here? Or something like that. Well, the principle, if that happens, as you said, is just keep that there. Bring it into the imagery. You tell the person, you know, I'm mad that you're so far away. Why aren't you here with me? And then let that person who's being supportive and understanding and attuned as much as possible, let that imagined person respond. It's like, well, of course you're mad. I wish I could have been here more. I wish I could be here for you more. Let me hold you or let me acknowledge that that's what you're feeling now. There's nothing wrong with what you're feeling. And I imagine too that this may be a journey where you become more and more comfortable with it. So try it and then over repetition, probably your body and your imagery becomes easier to access and more available and can be further developed each time. It's not just the felt sense in the moment that feels so good. It really is having an impact on our social emotional engagement and our nervous system and the encoding of our body and the development of a deeper sense of security inside yourself in this moment of such a hard time. And that a felt sense of security and to deepen that felt sense is what also will help us be able to weather this. So we want to be able to use imagery in our bodies and so many different ways. You, for the moment with your wife, imagining that we're all going to get through this, imagining we're not alone. We're wanting to develop that felt sense of security in our system to help weather the storm of what we're all in together universally. And the more the felt sense is felt, and the clearer that is, the more that's an indication and can give us confidence that it's actually affecting the nervous system in the ways that can be so helpful amidst the challenges and threats that we're all facing. Well, David, thank you so much for being on the show and for bringing this. It's such a great resource. It's such an important time. And I have such gratitude to you for bringing yourself and bringing this wonderful information to us. So thank you so much. So very welcome. It's, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Anne. And I'm so glad we're working on the book together with Sue. Yes. Yes, this just motivates us more, doesn't it? It just motivates us to, to use and to continue these kinds of imagery in all sorts of different ways in different circumstances that can lead to such deep healing and security building. So right. I wish all of the listeners well, and may you find ways to navigate all this with the best possible resources, inner and outer. Thank you. And uh, the contact information for David and information about him will be in our show notes. We really appreciate you joining us, and we will see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.